You hear all this talk of climate change, this environmental stuff, this ESG, but what can you actually do? Having helping helped businesses avoid 74,000 tonnes of carbon emissions, which is quite a big number, but at the same time, those businesses have saved $100 million. So sustainability right now is the low-hanging fruit. It's got really good um, business benefit behind it. Later on, it is going to get... And how can you do it in a way that makes your business money? Our model is to charge not very much, but over, you know, on an annuity basis. So rather than getting paid for it all up front, you get paid month by month by month. And so in whatever, five, ten years' time, that accumulates and suddenly you're looking at quite a lot of money. And at that point in time, you start making profit. So... That's what this one's about. All right, well, let's kick into it. So I like to say every podcast just to see who the person is and what they do. So how would you sort of encapsulate what you do? Uh, so what do I do? I run a company that helps other businesses reduce their carbon emissions. And so we've got a whole bunch of smart people who develop some software and a whole bunch of smart people who provide advice and uh, we talk to mainly large and enterprise-sized businesses in New Zealand and a few other countries around the world um, and help them get to where we all should be. Okay, cool. Well, let, let, let's unpack you a little bit. Go way back because I think, Ooh. you know, the sustainability is very topical and we'll get into it. But where are you from? Where are you born? Uh, Hamilton. Oh, you escaped. Good yeah, man. Yeah. Well, we all, most of us escape, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> I heard it was um, rated one of the top places in New Zealand in terms of beauty for with beauty. Wanganui. Yeah, interesting. Um, it's, it's normally other things, um, but I won't go there. The, <laughs> uh, the um, yeah, uh, it was interesting growing up there. It was yeah. it was cool. We I had a good childhood. We had a good time, um, and yeah, it was nice. But that's you know at that stage, that's all you know. Yeah. What what was what were you at school? Were you the nerd, the jock? What were, were you? Oh, I was kind of down the middle. The, um, no, I played a bunch of sports, um, and we did pretty well. What um, sport were you? Uh, football and volleyball, soccer, soccer and volleyball. Huh. Yeah, my main two, but I played basketball and others. Stayed away from anything that took more than four hours. Yeah. So you can jump, huh? Used no, I was the setter. <laughs> I was the setter. I couldn't jump. Jeez. Yeah, but they got to. I figured that Sita gets to touch the ball every time, and they never have to go off. So, um, fair, most, most fun position on the pitch. You get no glory, but that's okay. I'm not after after the glory. And you just get to play a lot. Yeah, so. you cracked it because no one wants that position. Huh? It yeah, sounds- well, it makes it really easy. Yeah, <laughs> well, see, I fell into it. Um, you know, I don't seem to be all right at it, but I fell into it, and yeah, especially if you can't jump, it really helps. So, yeah, that's no, good. What were, what were you, like, did you ever go, like, championships or anything like that, or regional? Uh, we were tier two, um, tier so two. We, we did go to the tier two regionals over in uh, Tauranga, uh, but oh, we yeah. never made it down to, I think the tier one is New Plymouth or Palmy, can't remember which one, but yeah, okay, never got there. Uh, soccer-wise, we were good. We um, so we did pretty well on that and played in nationals and did, did well. Oh, watch out! So, well, so were you on the on the bench or your starter? No, I was captain of both. You're of captain the, of, of the volleyball and, and volleyball. of football. Yeah, yeah. So why do you think that is? What, what do you think they picked? Ooh, in um, <laughs> don't get tall poppy syndrome right now. No, no, possibly the same reason on both. Um, navigating the different individuals involved and that probably doesn't ever change in your life and probably is what I do now as you know as CEO you're often you're pulling together teams and trying to make them work hmm. so it's kind of the same thing and I, I think I was probably doing it back then what, what was something because I've been captain in a lot of my sporting career I don't know why I didn't back myself at all it no just, same it's always <laughs> a surprise it was like oh, me? why <laughs> what, what are like did you try things out from a captain standpoint at school were you try like how do I motivate this team or how do I get an example or what were your lessons or you oh, just sort of just uh, had the title did oh, nothing I, I don't know <laughs> teenage boy you know I'm not sure you're that consciously competent of that sort of stuff uh, way back then but it was um, you, you learn a lot usually in hindsight usually the things you did wrong um, and there are always, you know, really good players in the team and, and it's a matter of working as a team so they do really well but also everyone else gets to, you know, make the whole team work because it's not a, a single person's game, neither of them. So, If you were to go back with all your knowledge as a CEO, Ooh. how would you run the soccer team to achieve success? Um, spend more time talking to them and focusing on that teamwork piece, I think, um, because, yeah, You've got the coach, and everyone looks up to the coach physically 
and literally and eventually, <laughs> you know, whatever. But um, and so it's really the coach that does the most of that in high school. And mm. whereas I think as a CEO, then there is no coach; it's you. You know, so um, if I was to take more of a leadership position back then, yeah, that's what my counsel would be: is, mm. is to talk to the team a bit more and give them that micro coaching that the bigger, you know, that the coach isn't able to do. Because I never actually thought of from a sporting standpoint. Didn't know where I would go there, but I um I noticed with training sales teams that uh they didn't really care what I said. It was more the person in the trenches. Because yes. my viewpoint is completely out of touch to their experience in a way. Either it's a Peter Stilling, what's for yep. me is different for them. So, hundred percent. Oh yeah, similar. So how do you like you say the same thing, but the same someone in a different position says the same thing, but it hits different. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, CEO's master of all trades and jack of none and, and well, vice versa, jack of all trades and master of none. The, and so I was running sales, but we've got a new head of sales in the, in the team. And, and, you know, some of the things that I wasn't able to do, and he's doing so much better, is spending time in the trenches in deals with clients and helping move those forward and just bringing those specific skills to bear. And so I think... You know, everybody's really important in, in that. Um, certain people, are, nobody's more or less important. Everyone's got their own skills, and and they bring that to bear. So I think um, that's it. That's that whole team thing. How, how do you how do you sell like you know environmental like because essentially you're you're selling a perception in a way. Like sure they might care. That's unusual for businesses in my opinion. It's usually how do you make more money, but they do care, but they still want to make more money. And you're coming in being like. Well, this could potentially cost you more money, but people think you're doing a good job, or or it actually saves them money. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. So there are a bunch of businesses that have been doing this for quite a long time. That's one of the really interesting things. They've been, you know, carbon zero or saving carbon emissions for ten, twelve years, um, which. Back then, it wasn't a thing, so they didn't really talk about it. But they were doing it, and they were such forward-looking businesses that. They were embedding that all the way back then, which is amazing. Um, really, where we're at now is, as we describe it, we're moving through those kind of early adopters who did start early, and we're often large companies. There's a bunch of really good smaller companies doing it too. But entering the kind of the mainstream, the early majority, so certainly not the entire majority, um, but the the earlier ones that are just starting to get it and, and get moving forward. So that's very cool. Now, one of the things we do is, um, you know, we've, worked in the space for a long time so we've just updated our impact statement um, and so we talk about um, having helping helped businesses avoid 74,000 tons of carbon emissions which is quite a big number but at the same time those businesses have saved a hundred million dollars so sustainability right now is the low-hanging fruit it's got really good um, business benefit behind it later on it is going to get tougher um, the actual business case will get outweighed as we deal with the, the easier things, the things with um, they're easier to business case and get across the line. It's actually quite easy to save carbon and reduce costs. Later on, as we take away all those easy ones and get into the harder ones, then the business case gets tougher and tougher. So, um, yeah, we say sustainability makes good business sense, and right now it certainly does. And uh, ideally, as businesses move through their easy ones into the more difficult ones, um, you know, technology moves forward, and you know, we all have changed our attitudes towards it. So, um, the the knowledge and experience around the industry has increased a huge amount. Um, the fact that more businesses are doing it is really helping other businesses, and people move between businesses and bring their experience. Um, that's super helpful. But um, yeah, right now, it's it's a really good thing to do financially and environmentally. Well, imagine because a lot of your clients, you know, governments and publicly listed companies. Imagine, like, especially oh, I don't know who it is. I think it's BlackRock that's got like these ESG criteria, and yeah, you've got to yeah. fit those, and that's going to help you be on their listings, and you get all that money. And yeah, do do you find there's a variance in terms of the motivation of different businesses and what oh, leads to the motivation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a year ago, even we'd be talking to a director and of a business, and they may may not care. It wasn't on their agenda at all. 
um, this year it really is. Um, for the last two odd years, the Institute of Directors, they produce their, you know, the top five things that directors care about. And for the last couple of years, climate change has been on that, which is good. But even then, you know, many of the directors had other problems to deal with. You know, we're coming out of COVID and all sorts of things. Um, but now there's a massive increase in engagement um, from directors from all levels in the business about moving forward, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, so it's 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 definitely getting better, and it's the conversations are getting easier to get to the people that really can make a difference, make the decisions, and drive the change. Uh, that even a year or two ago it was much much more difficult. Yeah. So so what are you actually doing? So you so like. We're going to improve your environmental component with your business. What do you? Let's let's use an example. Like what yeah. are, like you go to a bank or you go to a I don't know a large company and you're like, ta da, less trees are burnt. Like oh, yeah, we're yeah. chopped up for paper. What are you doing? What's yeah. The- so the you can there's two parts, right? You've, okay. you've got to do the reporting, but you've got to go. This is where we are, and we always say publicly report because it holds yourself to account. So if you say you know. It's 84 million tons or, you know, whatever your number is. Usually it's a pretty big number. Um, and then there's the reduce part. Some of the reduce things you can just get on with are kind of no-brainers. If it's, say, all your fleet is coming up for lease, you should be looking at EVs. Now, we don't do any of the consulting work or anything around cars or fleets, but, um, you know, there's a bunch of things you can get on with. But at the same time, you also need to do the accounting to work out what your number is and... When you work out what the number is, it, it all gets put into different categories and scopes, and um, that's what the, the carbon accounting tools do. And then that allows you to see where your biggest emission sources are, so then you can target that. So if your biggest emission sources is cars, then great. You know you know where to focus. If your biggest emission sources is flights, then you know where to focus. If it's electricity and gas, you know again, it's it allows you to target where you can make the biggest impact first. Um, because as I say, the, the first ones you attack are going to be the easiest ones. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And then the momentum builds. Um, and the way we look at it is um, the businesses that will succeed in the future will integrate sustainability into how they operate. You know, right now, if you look at if you look at big sporting events, pretty much most of the logos will be um, tech companies. You know, they are the ones sponsoring the events. You look five years ago, it was you know alcohol and cigarettes. So as things move forward. The next five years probably will be companies that have built sustainability into the way they operate, and they are getting the competitive advantage. So, it's it's um, you know it's quite a big transformation transition moment we think in terms of how businesses operate, and the ones that really start to integrate sustainability are the ones that people will buy from more and more, and you know they'll be the ones that are sponsoring the sports events in five ten years time because they're the ones that lead the way. So it won't be the oil companies anymore; it'll be kind of the good guys if you will the good guys i i think you know i um, can be a bit simple at times so to, to sort of grasp it you 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 help them with reporting yeah and then you give them ideas on how to reduce yeah. the highlighted issues from the reporting yeah so we as a business focus on one part of it which is primarily called scope two which is basic yeah electricity and your gas so if you uh if you are a large business with that uses lots of buildings lots mm-hmm. of electricity we um, help you get that usage down or um, can help you convert from gas boilers or whatever to electricity mm-hmm. so that's the main focus of what we do that's we've got a very, very long 20 year plus heritage in that space so like I say we don't deal with uh, car can you know, moving to EVs and all the other complicated things that needs to need to occur um, so when we help with reduce um, that's that's our focus. So, for example, um, you know, a lot of the buildings around Auckland um, and the rest of the country, we monitor. So we have metering devices in all of them, um, and we pull that data into the cloud. And we've got a bunch of consultants who look at that, and, and clients look at it, and they can identify what buildings, etc., um, they should target, and which ones are performing badly, and then they can work on those to get their energy use down. So. Hmm. Um, so we used, we worked with um, one of the councils around um, um, through COVID, super interesting. Um, so they were able to log into the building, understand you know, if it's library that the um, energy use, energy was off, but two times a day it would come back on, 
send some fresh air around the building and then turn off again so that they could keep everything at the right temperature, the right air freshness, etc., but minimise energy use. But they could do that all remotely, which is kind of cool because they weren't at that stage allowed into the buildings. But, um, you know, you can apply that to everything else as well. So making sure that everything's working in the optimum fashion. Hmm. Yeah, so that's that's our area of spe- uh, specialisation in terms of reducing energy. So it's com- complicated and only the big companies really benefit. So if you're a small business, I mean, it's really about turning the lights out, which isn't a massive <laughs> change, to be honest. Uh, hence the reason most of the efforts actually being focused in those big businesses because they have, the numbers are just bigger and they can afford to have people telling them how they can reduce energy or, or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, it makes sense. Hey, big company, we'll make it easier for you to understand where you're leaking a whole lot of costs and you're helping the environment. Yeah. Do, do they get like a tick as well? Like, do you get, you know, like how the health tick on whatever? Is there like a version of that? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things. So the the, the most recognized one around is um, from Toy2. Um, they've got their carbon zero certification. So the businesses, they go out and they do their carbon accounting. They add all the numbers up and they say, this is our number. Toy2 verify that and go, is this legit? Uh, which is like a financial audit essentially, but for carbon. Um, and then if they then if they carbon zero, which most businesses aren't, they normally are offsetting at the moment, so they're buying carbon offsets. Like if you fly on a, a plane and you can click the button to say yeah, offset my emissions, and mm. um, they offset that, and then by the same amount, and that gives them the carbon zero certification. So. I think Toy Two were doing eight hundred odd building uh, businesses the last time I looked. Um, <laughs> it's quite a lot of businesses, large, large, large ones and small ones. Um, so there's that kind of tick. There's a couple of other companies. Ecos um, is a very strong in the space, and there's a, a few others. Um, equally for buildings, there's certifications for that. Um, so we do. If you have a look around a bunch of buildings, you'll. Uh, increasingly see things like Green Star certifications or Neighbours certifications. So that tells you how uh, how well that building performs from an energy efficiency <laughs> environment perspective. So those are coming in. They're now mandated in some s- certain size government buildings, which is fantastic. Um, perfectly honest, we expect that to be more pervasive. In Australia, any office building over a certain size, quite small, has to be mandatorily Neighbours rated. Um, which uh, that scheme is from Australia. We've imported it here, but haven't rolled it out as actively as Australians have. But that's made a big difference over there, and and we believe it'll become more pervasive over here too. So there's lots of things that means you know smaller businesses can move into a neighbour's four star, five star, six star building and know that that building's performing and they're therefore optimised in terms of their energy use. So that part of their carbon emissions are taken care of and. They can focus on, you know, their cars or their flights or the other things that they do. It was mainly the reason I was asking was like, you know, let's say you get this big company that come in, you do all the analysis of their electrical stuff, and then you know they decrease that that cost. Does that help them in getting passing a certain criteria? Yeah. It, so, like I say, if they the smaller the number, the better, right? So yeah, yeah. it just means you're impacting the environment less. Um, so that helps them get down to that level. If they want a certification, say from Toy2 to be carbon zero, um, then their cost to do their offsetting is a lot less. Um, you know, they can either pay more and still end up carbon zero, or pay less and be carbon zero. We don't. Uh, we agree with offsets; they're kind of needed right now. But obviously, the goal should be reducing your emissions, not just buying your way out of it. <laughs> You know, so there is that aspect, yeah. But, yeah, well, um, it's, it sounds like not too much of a hard sell. It depends on how you charge, but it's like, hey, how would you like to reduce your costs dramatically? Yeah, one would think. <laughs> one would think. they got to believe it's it, it yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it's, and you know, everyone's got priorities, you know, it's particularly if you're running a large manufacturing plant, the last thing you want is a machine breaking down. You, um, you know, that's your focus to keep things, production running as, you know, optimised as possible and, You've got people to deal with and all that sort of stuff, and now you've got to deal with carbon. And um, you know, is that, is that really important when surely you just want me to run the machine really well? Um, but as those things become more and more important to directors and you know the bosses and stuff like that, then they start becoming more important to the the operations teams and those sorts of things. So it takes a little while to filter through, but like I say, it's it's getting there, uh, which is pretty cool. 
what would you so let, on average let, maybe not specific data but let's say you you have a building yeah it's a large corporation yeah and you drop their cost by a certain amount do you sort of know what that is or is it sometimes vary or it doesn't um no it's, sometimes you don't well it, it, yes yes or no um so if you're in an office building you should be able to get and, and it's a moderately aged one most you know most of our building stocks reasonably old there's obviously a bunch of new ones getting built down the waterfront mm. um if it's not a brand new building you're probably going to be able to improve it by 20 percent. so that's not too bad just you know and that's that's pretty quick um and then after that uh so there's a bunch we do down down the waterfront that are over 30 percent now um energy savings which add up you know when it's you're talking seven thousand people i think in the whole lot of them it's a lot of people housed in there so it's a lot of energy getting used so you know the savings add up um so that's that's pretty cool um what would be a dollar value like on some clients you don't say who but like yeah we saved them a million dollars in a year or something you know um a million bucks well there are some clients that have we're definitely saving million bucks a year um a year on year before you met them yeah, since uh, year on year. So since the time they first started to now, and, and you know, relative to their baseline, they're saving over a million bucks a year. Um, Just charge on that, 50-50. Yeah, I know. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Shouldn't it? It'd be nice. And it's like insurance, though. You know, it's sort of like if you don't need it. But you can't stop because as soon as you stop, the energy use goes back up again. That's the thing. Um, mm. Because there's... Um, all your systems get older and, and you've got to keep an eye on that. It's like playing whack-a-mole. You know, as soon as you kind of take your eye off, it pops back up and you've got to mm. whack it down again. So particularly if you've got a large environment or, you know, the the councils, et cetera, you know, 2,500 buildings around Auckland, et cetera, or even more, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of things to keep your eye on at once and you can't do that manually. You can't just walk out to a building and trundle through it. You need, you know... 500 people doing that all the time to keep it in control whereas if you use technology you can so um, that's the space that we play in you know we try and apply technology to the problem we all say we have a productivity problem in New Zealand and you know look to technology as the way to to help your way out of that Um, so yeah we we do well in those large complex environments where um, there's too much going on for one person to kind of look at. And, and in manufacturing plants where you've got a whole bunch of machinery and processes running, um, being able to have technology that can keep an eye on it for you um, really helps the you know, hmm. property managers or operations managers stuff. So it does tend to be big companies, to be fair. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's that's the other ones that are emitting the most. So you know, yeah, it's yeah. Kind, of, kind of start there. It's great when the... Yes, the small to medium businesses get onto it. That's that's awesome, and we all have a part to play for sure. Um, but it's the bigger matters that that you know need to get their numbers down. So, because this is a bit naive, and I don't know the mechanics of it, and you probably lose money if I, with this idea. But like, so what what stops you going to these large corporations, and being like, hey, you know, we'll we'll do a quick assessment on where you could save it, and then in your mind you're like, okay, this is going to be a big saving, and then say to them, yo. Don't pay us anything now. Fifty yeah, percent yeah. over the next five years of the cost we save. Yeah, so that happens a lot in the states. Um, okay, it's called a thing that I suddenly can't remember. Um, uh, the the issue is most of the ones in this most. Yeah, I believe it's more than fifty percent end up in court. So take for example, <laughs> um, uh, take COVID. You know, so. You, uh, there was a nine percent reduction in energy use over that year through the monitoring that we do, um, which is, looks fantastic. But who gets the credit for that? Do we get money for it because they reduced emissions, or do they keep it because they didn't have anyone in their buildings and shut them down because of the systems we provide? So, or do you end up in court because you're arguing over it? And and that's the problem. Um, it's quite difficult to really have a clear contract in place that just works which is why i mean okay america maybe is a bit more litigious than we are here but it's quite difficult and that's why it hasn't tended to be a model there is one company doing it um i don't really know how they're doing um around it but yeah so it, it pops up every now and then there's a whole industry generated to create statistical models that identify baselines that essentially said that if this happens, that happens, and this happens, then this is what your baseline should be, then what you should produce. And if it's below that, we'll keep it. And if it's above that, well, 
technical problem. <laughs> but um, but uh, they're really complicated. You know, we've got a few clients on those, um, but they're really super complicated. And to be honest, the administration's more difficult than it's worth. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a good idea, but the practicalities and the you know commercial realities around it makes make it a bit difficult, and it just hasn't been accepted over here particularly much. Yeah, because then you might get a new machine or a new thing, and then the conditions aren't the same. And yeah, yeah, I mean that's all. You know, you start, you then decide to put a data center on a floor, and your energy use goes up, or you know, you take your data center out, and the energy use goes down. Well, who who's whose joy is that? So mm. yeah, it's, it's sorry, it's just a bit hard. Yeah, I, I'm always just curious how you would sell something. I, it's, it's just interesting because you know that's a compelling offer, but the deliverability of it's you know yeah. unrealistic. Because I imagine you probably have to have a high upfront cost, well, a, a, a valuable upfront support. <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got to go through that and all these key decision makers, yeah. and then they're like, oh, maybe uh, we don't care that much about carbon, but we say we do. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the problem with COVID. I mean, with everybody, nobody knew what was going on, you know, particularly in the building space, if all the tenants were heading home. So it's like, well, pretty difficult every all anything that was budgeted well not even budgeted anything that was in a proposal just went back into the pot and it was mm. like well no we're not doing that because we don't know what three months is going to look like so kind of a lot of things stopped at that point in time just because people were in survival mode or businesses were in survival mode so yeah that was pretty tough but as we come through now you know building performance ratings energy efficiency carbon accounting in the built environment has just really gone mainstream I and mean, the, the pickup there has been amazing uh, we work with a lot of the property managers now, and, and they're really on board. It's really impressive. Um, and what we see is the professional property managers are, yeah, they're really onto it. They often deal with large international landlords who, you know, I actually own the building, but the property managers here, um, they're looking after them for them. And then obviously we have a bunch of large listed companies, and again, they're the same. They're really onto that stuff. The privately owned landlords or the syndicates, they're a little less active um, because they're kind of sitting there they don't care about their drivers are a little bit different whereas the you know the commercial lot are, are quite transparent to the market so property values going up and down and and all of that changes all the time it's it's out in the market it's very clear whereas the private investors that it's not as clear you know they don't have to declare anything so they're less active in the in this space um, and from from what I remember it's about 45 percent I think are private investors so you know we'd love to be able to unlock them the public and the publicly listed ones and the professional managed ones i mean they're, they're awesome they're really onto it now so just on that uh, the reason i look away sometimes is because this only goes for 30 minutes and i push a button so it doesn't oh, okay. so you've done 27 minutes yeah. that's why what's that like to sell that you know what i mean so so you got you got these large conglomerates huge decision makers i was talking to a guy selling something for like a few million dollars and i was like can't even fathom that but because the art is getting to the decision maker and then also equipping that decision maker to progress to another stage so then you can get in front of these other people and yeah. then they think about it for six months and you've got to pay your staff yeah how, what, how did you start? How, what was your... Yeah, so it's, it's even worse than that in SaaS. You know, you, you don't hear software as a service companies, you know, zero, et cetera. They lose money for a long time because our model is to is to charge not very much, but, you know, on an annuity basis. So rather than getting paid for it all up front, you get paid month by month by month. And so in whatever, five, ten years' time, that accumulates and suddenly you're looking at quite a lot of money. And at that point in time, you start making a profit. So, yeah, it's not even just the sales cycle of t trying to find the person to talk to and talking to them, but then also actually because we try and keep the cost down and it's a subscription model, then it takes a long time again even to recoup your investment costs. Um, well, that's probably why I started talking about the fact that it is easy. It's you know, the rising tide is lifting all boats. You know, the, the knowledge out there is so much higher and the directors are engaged and the executive mm. are engaged. And so that first bit about finding the people and getting to them and having the conversation about why is so much easier than it used to be. Um, so, um, and there's new legislation out there that came out in New Zealand, for New Zealand in January. And that's affecting about 170 of our 
not necessarily largest, but some of some of our largest companies, and they are now legislated that they have to produce a full carbon accounting report publicly, and so that's really moved them into gear, and so legislation's really moving it forward, and one of the interesting things, if you're in the interest industry, is that deals with what's called scope three, which is really about your supply chain, your upstream and downstream consequences, so the people you buy off and and you know potentially the people you sell to um and so in terms of the people you buy off and you want to you're having to account for the emissions that they create in the production of the work that they do for you so if they have to drive trucks around to mm. deliver goods to your door or that sort of stuff you now need to start accounting for them which gets really complicated but what's interesting is um as you then want to reduce your carbon emissions because you want to have a good number and you want to be a good corporate citizen and keep your social license up and all those good things, um, you're then looking at your suppliers to go, well, I want my suppliers to reduce their emissions because that's affecting me. So then you start choosing suppliers based on their carbon emissions. And so the trickle down from those 170 companies just gets kind of bigger and bigger. Mm. If you're a five-person company, it's not really going to touch you for quite a long time because it's quite hard, this stuff. And so if you've got, you know, we're talking to somebody today, 4,500 suppliers, you know, you can only really focus on the top 250 of those first because they're going to be your biggest emitters. And if you work with them to reduce it or choose vendors that have got lower carbon emissions, that will help you get your footprint down. And that's your kind of your first goal. And, and so there's kind of, Darwinian, you know, natural selection process that's going to start happening where mm. people choose vendors who are committed to the same cause that they are. Um, so yeah, that's when it's going to get. That's when it starts affecting everyone, every business, and every individual. So yeah, well, it makes sense as well. If if you're going for these big guys, and these big guys are going to influence the less big guys, or they're the biggest clients for these other big guys, yeah. then they just you keep going down. Hopefully, yeah, and and even you know the banks now need to choosing the banks. They need to account for their what's called financed emissions. So anything that they finance, whether it's a car, a house, or a business, mm. they need to start accounting for the emissions associated with that. Oh, you, a, you can imagine how complicated that is. But B, you know, you can imagine the next impact of that is they'll start financing things that are lower emissions. And this is where these green loans come in. So, you know, financing cars, if they finance an EV, then that's much better on their footprint than it is if they're financing a a you know traditional ice vehicle so um hmm. internal combustion engine vehicle yeah so in that in businesses the same thing so you know would they rather finance somebody who's belching out coal smoke or a you know low carbon intensive business and so they will start from putting their investor dollars into various places um and same with the built environment you know their property teams are providing green loans to buildings that are you know green star rated neighbors rated um uh, or you know financing improvements that help businesses and buildings become better performing yeah it's interesting it's like like even if we didn't have all the legislation and even if there was no such thing as climate change like even if it was like you know carbon doesn't do anything to global warming it would make sense that a business that's run more sustainably would be a better business in the short term no i would compare it to like mcdonald's in a salad yeah like mcdonald's feels good in the moment but over long term it doesn't do too well yeah 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 i mean you look at all the dystopian movies and they're all you know dry desert landscapes and stuff like that it's like because what the planet's heated you know heated up too much it's not a great place to live and then you look at the ones that are nice and utopian they tend to be really green so i kind of it's not whether or not you agree with climate change. I kind of think the latter is a better version anyway. Mm. You know, and, and I guess I would prefer that we were heading that way because I think that's a better way. The, one of the big challenges around the economics of what you're talking about is, um, you know, who moves first may be at a disadvantage yeah, because yeah. it costs a bit more to produce those products or something. Um, that's one of the big handbrakes or, you know, areas that are getting not debated because nobody really talks about it but it's you know it's one of the big things if we move first and our trading uh, our competitors move later then they potentially will end up selling more than we will but you know all you're doing is then shifting the commodities into a worse performing country (laughs) away from a better performing country because 
you know, people follow the dollar. So they say they want to be green, but are they willing to stump it up? Particularly, you know, with inflation like it is, you know, mm. you then starting to chase the the more green whatever it is, um, you know, in your day to day purchasing decisions. Yeah, it's interesting. Eh? It's like, how would you differentiate yourself? This is a bit woo woo because I was talking to a lady about energy and stuff because I'm a happy at heart, but I'm also you know a capitalist, so I'm confused myself. But like you, you think of even just my state of mind when I'm around someone, and I I feel like I have clear intent. I'm not conflicted with how I'm feeling in the way that I contribute to them and to my world. And you think of an organization that even if they're manufacturing, it's very hmm. woo woo, but. If, if they're making conscious decisions about the impact, whether it's pollution, being smart with energy, whether it's doing right by staff, mm. and then the branding is consistent to that because branding is just really just, I believe, sort of like people. And it, how do you... Like, there's very few brands where it's not people. Even Nike is just someone else's people. Yeah. Elon Musk, Tesla. Um, so... I wonder what, like, if we were able to get, like, get data on it, comparing a business that's doing right by people and doing right by the environment, how would that extrapolate over the long term? Yeah. I mean, there's always, <laughs> I had this little d- discussion with somebody the other day. So there's always, people are always pulling out stats that, you know, businesses that do X outperform others by Y. You know, and, and, and that's kind of great. But I kind of look at it and go, I think it's more the businesses that are forward looking. They've got their act sorted, and so they're working on things earlier than other businesses, and it's because they're doing that, that's why they perform better. And the businesses that are looking forward are dealing with those things now. You know, um, Like I say, there's all these businesses that have been dealing with climate change or diversity or you know, a whole bunch of really important topics um, for the last 10 years. And the rest of us weren't even thinking about it properly. You know, So... Those businesses are the ones that are doing really well, and they will keep doing well. Businesses that are forward-looking, and um, so I think that that's the really important thing. You know, if we look backwards or just stay where we are, then you know those are the ones, the businesses or the people or whatever. They're, they're the ones that are going to be challenged or are challenged already. You know. Well, here's some dangerous territory for you. So see if, if you want to answer or not. But you know, there there'll be some people out there watching this and being like, you know what? I feel like it's just a play for control you know yeah using the whole global warming thing just so they can exert more control and regulation and stuff would you have any two cents on that or would you sidestep it oh <laughs> i just i you know i run a business and and our business isn't any different there's no one trying to control us there's no one trying to control the businesses around here there's no uber machine running the place illuminati you know no, i don't you don't, okay, they haven't, just, they'd snuck you in a room and told well, you. Well, if they're doing it, they're doing it really well. Hidden, <laughs> and, and it's just ridiculous, in my opinion, that people think that that could be occurring, that you've got all these really smart people out there doing stuff, and they're all controlled somehow by some small group of people somewhere. I mean, yeah, so I, I just find it incredible that people can actually believe that. Um, yeah, and see, I, I see the conspiracy stuff pops up every now and then. They're really funny because it's just like really... Really, I mean, I can see why you, and how you might stitch that together. That's just not happening. So, I, I could, I could, you know, take my eyes out of the back of head. They could say, but you know, I just think it's really funny. Okay, all Pers- right. Personally, yeah. Well, you you didn't dodge it, so fair enough. We won't go a bit more into it. Um. So, what was like when you first decided to start the business, or you came in later? What What was that moment where you're like going from? Have you always been an entrepreneur, or? You suddenly are oh, like, oh yeah. yeah, good question. Um, have I always been entrepreneurial? I, uh, my dad's a Sparky, you know, in his own company, and then told that, and then he bought a fish and chip shop and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> cool. So, and and so maybe I picked up that bug a little bit a while ago, and and um, and so I in God ages years ago, uh, me and a friend bought a com- software company, and and built that up and then sold it, and then I was really and so that was my first entrepreneurial moment. I was about 30 then. And that was amazing. It was really cool. Um, mm. It was such an experience of taking on that. And, you know, we had uh, amazing liberating times and then just terrifying times, you know, going into Christmas and wondering whether you can pay the payroll. 
and wondering whether you're going to keep your house and you know all of those things. It's just highs and lows, so it's a real roller coaster. And um, and and then working for large corporates, you know, really tired of working on the vendor side and getting going. Why do they keep mucking this up? Why do they keep making it so hard? And so wanting to go on the client side and build the thing that we were you know trying to build rather than being the vendor trying to convince them to do it. And so I did that for a while, and that was kind of kind of cool. Um, and when you're in corporates, you get to work with some amazing people, you know, super smart people um, that are really good at what they do, and mm. you learn a massive amount from them um, as well. And so I've always kind of had this balance between, you know, being a vendor selling to companies, being a company buying from vendors, working in small companies, working in large companies. Um, and they've all got, um, you know, a reasonably positive person and kind of look at each of them and go, what are the best of each bit? And, yeah, there are some bad bits around, you know, politics or, you know, the risks. Um, and and take lots of learning experiences from all of those and just really kind of loving each of them for what they were. And, um, you know, working worked for a super entrepreneurial guy over, over you know, a period not too far ago, Um who created lots of opportunities for us. He, he was, um, you know, I guess his entrepreneurial streak, he enabled us to want out and go out and do things too. Um, and he never kind of stifled that. Um, and then he enabled me into my kind of first CEO role um, of a SaaS company. And that was a, a global SaaS. And so, again, you know, giving me opportunities to do things was pretty cool um, because I guess I had that been. Um so, long way of saying, probably I really enjoy both for different reasons. Mm. Um, and uh, entrepreneurial's got its, you know, it, it's a little bit lonelier. Um, your is particularly well, you know, any CEO's felt it. Anyone who's got to go out and do it themselves has felt it. Um, you know, it's if you don't push forward, it, nothing's going to push forward. You mm. know. Um, uh, but yeah, corporate's awesome and entrepreneurial's awesome, and I've really enjoyed both. Um, hmm. But yeah, they're very different, very different. What, what have you learned? Like, so you're probably Sydney two extremes of businesses: mm. starting out, middle, corporate. Yeah. What leads to a well-run corporate at scale? You know, like I can, I can get the whole fifteen people. I've done that. Yeah, yeah. Then I can just talk to them when yeah. that gets to systems. Yeah. So, um, when I joined the last one, I joined that company because the the guy that owned it. Um, he was acquiring the company I worked for, and he was super decisive. And and um, we, he he said to me that um, he believed a business should be able to change direction in forty five days. And I went, that's got to be a cool company to work for. You know, if you can be that aligned, and you know, particularly when you've got this technology background and and you know you run the IT systems, it says a lot for what you've got to be in order to deliver to that. And that's a pretty exciting place to be. You've got to be really on your game. You've got to have everything really clear about what you're doing. And yeah, like I say, that, that's a pretty inspirational vision. Um, and so that was what made me join that company, was, you know, when he talked to me about that and a lot of the other things he said. But um, yeah, so I, I think as a leader, you've got to kind of create the business that you think will succeed and that business to me needs to be a dynamic business that is forward looking and has a team that are really well aligned around it. I mean the the software company that a friend and I owned, we uh, were involved, partnered with Microsoft and Microsoft, you go over to the conferences in the States and stuff and there's 15, 20,000 people sitting in a room and again I'll talk to my team about this and, and you know there's 20,000 people in say the Staples Broadway Centre or something, you know, the big basketball arena in LA. And you'd be listening to one of the heads talk, you know, in this case Steve Ballmer or, you know, one of the Microsoft giants. And you'd be sitting next to all the Microsoft partners and listen they you know, we we're all listening to what they were saying. And I'd come out of the room going, What the heck just happened? Because you could virtually see of the, you know, fifteen thousand people in the room, half of them, the Microsoft people, change direction in an instant and they would go Last year we were selling this, you were in, we were incentivized this way, this is what we were talking to you about, and now we're doing that. And that was done in 45 minutes. You know, he would get up on the stage, say, this is what we're doing, you know, we were this, now we're all in on that, or, you know, whatever big Microsoft thing they would say and throughout mm. the call aid. 
And um, yeah, these this all the Microsoft people would come out and they would know their ne- new direction in 45 minutes. I mean, that is incredible. And they knew you know, they then had a, a conference shortly afterwards and they would um, go away to that and they knew all their KPIs were going to come out. They knew how they were going to be incentive. They knew where, where things were going. They, they would get their collateral and get all the information they needed and away they would go. You know, that's amazing to be able to turn a business like that in a, such a short space of time. And um, I guess I'm driven by change. I'm change agent you know if, if it was for me, if it was a let's grow by three percent let's grow by six percent that wouldn't interest me at all drive me crazy um but when you're talking about transformation and really shifting the dial on a business that's what excites me and um so building businesses that can do that and how you need to be able to treat your team and how engaged you need your team and all of those things that's pretty inspiring and i think if a leader can do that that's that's what their job is really interesting well we've done um 41 minutes. <laughs> what, what, how does a leader do that? Oh, crap. I'd like to say I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, th- I think that, um, oh, man, it's so complicated. Um, or what works for you? Yeah, yeah. I guess, firstly, you never really know. Um, well, you, you probably know when you get there, but um, you I try and put the foundation stones in place, right? So, right, you know, make sure I've got the right people in the right place. Make sure mm. they understand their roles, you know, what I'm expecting of them, and then paint out that picture of where we want to be and try and set that up right. And and that's people process and um, you know, making sure they've got the right strategy and vision. And um, you know, there's so many good people who talk about high performing teams that you know how you put that together. So much more qualified than I. Um, yeah, so it's it's really about inspiring them, setting up, making painting a vision that they can actually understand and, and buy into, um, getting the right people in the right roles, um, helping them succeed. I'm not a micromanager. I tend to give the people a lot of room because people tend to like that. Treating them well, you know. Um, this, you know, one of my high horses is you know there's so many people that bash companies, but actually, and there are bad companies out there. Yeah, absolutely. But so many companies are not. You know, people, the managers are managers are people too. You know, they want to they want to treat people well because they trust them. You know, and if you trust somebody, if something happens, well, that's okay. It happens. You know, nobody, you know, very few people are being malicious about things out there, and man, managers and team members. So you know, building environment around trust and. Uh, responsibility and you know making sure that people can succeed I, you know it's all those little things that add up to being the big things um but yeah i mean you look at sports teams and what makes them great um and it's about it's it's never just having the best players on the team or anything like that you know you can you can build great teams out of, of people who aren't necessarily the the Lionel Messi's of the world you know it's it's mm. really about having a, a team that works really really well together do you, do you do the hiring component or is it more you get given a person and you're like, this is your role? Like, what is the main thing you do in your day-to-day? Yeah, um, all the books and podcasts say that you should, the CEO should spend, you know, 20 or 30% of their time on hiring, which seems incredible. <laughs> I don't know where I'd find that time. Um, I like to be involved in as many processes as I can. We've really started shifting our process, our hiring process to more... Um, Away from the less kind of functional questions, you know, can you give me an example of this to, of, you know, something you'll do in the day or you know, how you deal with conflict or whatever that is, you know, to um, more, um, I, <laughs> I like to ask difficult questions, give them the, the, the I think it's the Clayton's choice, the choice that there is no right answer um, to just see what answer they're going to give. Um, a will they give an answer? You know, will they actually commit to a path, or you know, will they see it for what it is, or those sorts of things? Just to understand them more, because so many questions now you can prepare for, and that's nice, but you know, it, it doesn't really tell you about the person. So I like to be involved in the process. You know, we also now ask, you know, personally, what are you doing? And, you know, reduce your impact, and you know, a lot of people still aren't doing anything, and that's not unusual. But, you know, there are people who are engaged and who have actually thought about it and, and are doing things. And, and those are, you know, as a business, kind of more aligned with our values and where we want to be. But, yeah, the, the people who can actually look forward and demonstrate the values are going to take them, that, you know, that show a good fit between us. That's, mm. that's what's important. You know, we've got lots wrong. We've got a whole bunch right, unfortunately. 
um, yeah, hiring staff, and I think the CEO should be involved in as many as they can. Interesting, yeah, because we used, we used to do recruitment for the sales job as well, and um, mm, super hard. Yeah, I love sales is the hardest. Um, oh, is it? Oh, yeah, I fucking love it. Eh? Yeah, well, you're dealing with people who are good at talking, you know, yeah, good at convincing your staff, and it's just a really hard. In the last hire the head of sales role, I think I think I did a reasonably good job. I had some really difficult questions in there. I found them on the internet. Oh, yeah. I was like, yeah, it was crazy. Um, and, it, you know, there's so many resources out there that support you. And it's like, uh, this one was a US one, you know, the 10 questions you should be asking your new VP of sales before you hire them. And hmm. I downloaded those. I did some really difficult ones in there. It's like, tell me what... Tell me how would I, tell me what my revenue will be like in three months after I hire you. And it's like, wow, that's an impossible question, <laughs> you know. But some people would say thirty percent higher. It's like, yeah, really? How? <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, that one didn't make the grade. Um, <laughs> you know, and other people going, well, I can't give you an answer to that, but I can tell you I can do this, and you know, they're starting to get a lot more tangible, and they'll, you know, they're the ones that want to work with you. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so some really interesting questions. Um, Testing ones to see how they'll respond without being a dick about it, but um, yeah, that's super hard. Sales is the hardest. Interesting, yeah. I've heard all different sorts. As one is like make them feel like reject them to see how they handle it, see if they push and want to yeah. be a part of it. Yeah, um, I, I personally I'm not a think fan of being mean to people. <laughs> no, nah, don't be a dick. But yeah. I, I believe most like experience doesn't matter at all in sales. In my experience and. It's almost a bad thing because their cup's full. Yeah. You've got to be optimistic in sales, right? And so, you know, yeah, it's the cup is full most of the time anyway, so they come from that place. No, I was meaning more like they they, they come in with preconceived notions oh. on how they'll do it instead yeah, of yeah, with okay. student mentality. Yeah, yeah. Because like, you, you can hire on values. My belief in sales is you just need to care, care more about the other person than they do, tell the truth, and have complete conviction in what you're selling. Yeah, yeah. So, because, like, I used to get kids to sell for me, which is a bit fucked up, I guess, if you think, oh, there's my first square word. <laughs> I did all right. I did all right. I almost, we almost made yeah. it. But, like, so I used to raise money for charity, and we raised a few million dollars in a year and a half. That's and um, you just talk to the kid will come up, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, we're helping these kids, and they have cancer, and they're like, oh, my God, that's so sad. I'm like, can, can you go grab that person and tell them about it? Yeah. And they'll just go because they believe in it, mm. and they have good rapport. Yeah. So, to me, it's 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 less about testing their talent or their resolve. It's more their values, their vision, and also will they do they care and will they believe in the product? Yeah, because sales is it's just a transfer of belief. It's not really anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a salesman, but uh, you know, somebody told me one day. I mean, authenticity is kind of everything, isn't it? Right, and. I like helping people. So for me, when they said, oh, it's just helping people, not selling, you know, you're not selling something to them that they don't want. If, if they don't, if you can't help them, then that's okay. You find someone else you can help. Mm. And by helping people makes it easy for me to help them, you know, because I just, I don't view it as sales. Um, yeah. And I think for me, that's what does it. Um, other people, different motivations. Um, but yeah, it's it's about that authenticity, I think. Cool. All right. Mm. Well, um, we've just done a podcast. Excellent. Is so, it a surprise? <laughs> yeah. One swear word, mum will be proud. Yeah. So well, we dropped a couple of dicks in there, but <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I was quoting you in my defence. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say it, but uh, I, I like to abruptly end it because of retention. So, um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. <laughs> Good fun. <laughs>